You're listening to Two Tape Decks and a Mixing Board, a podcast about life through the lens of music. Welcome to the show. I'm Jay Mack in St. Louis. And Sam Wade in Los Angeles. And we've got a really fun show. We've been talking about this for a while. This was this. We're going to do a, a track by track of one of our favorite albums of all time. Here, let me pull up your screen so I, on my screen so I can see you. Got to make eye contact I, through the through the. <laughs> yeah, man. You know we're making this work uh, and on you know different parts of the country, but. Uh... You know, I've been looking forward to doing this podcast, too. I mean, we're doing a few things on this show for the first time. One, we're dissecting a Beatles record for the first time. And uh, for those of you that have heard some other things that we've done up to this point, you know that the Beagle, that the Beatles are a big uh, influence on us in more ways than just music. And we're going to talk about other Beatles records. But also, I think it's exciting because... You know, from time to time, we're we're going to do this, right? J-Mac, we're going to like talk about, you know, any record and kind of go through it and just talk about what we like about it, maybe some stories about it. Yeah, and this is a great one to start with. I would like to say before we get any further, the show is now available on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Cool. So, and you can also email us at twotapedex at gmail.com. Love to get your feedback. I tell you what, send us an album. If you like this review, and trust me, it's going to be good. I'm just, I'm prophesizing that right now. This is going to be a great album review. Revolver is the album we're going to do, and this was this was really, really exciting when I first heard this. It was released in 1966, and if you listen to the other music in 1966, other than maybe The Stones, there wasn't really any... I, I don't even think The Stones had really got, gone this psychedelic to this point. This was probably... I mean, it's one. It's got to be one of the top, at least top 10 to 20 most, influen- most influential albums of all time. So many things... We're done for the first time on this record. It's going to be really fun to kind of get into it as Beatles nuts. I remember sitting in your living room in North County, St. Louis, and yep. you played Eleanor Rigby for me, which is track two. But let's let's. Uh, do you got anything you want to say about this album before we get started? Because I mean, I could just talk for literally three hours without even stopping to take a breath. Well, you know what? Maybe we should just go ahead and talk about this album for three hours. It's definitely one that's that's worth doing. You know, I and I'm sure that there's some people that would hang with that. Uh, you know, I think that this record, it's some there's been times in my life where this was my favorite Beatles record. Um, I think overall, it's really hard to pick a favorite one. Um, but this really does begin the era of the Beatles experimenting the studio. It's the first uh, psychedelic record that they did. Um, and it, you're right. It did influence a lot of people. But I also think this one was a direct response to Pet Sounds, which I'll, you know, uh, I'm going to talk about later, specifically with with one of the songs on the album. But I think the concept of like going into the studio and just um, doing things that you couldn't reproduce live that began with this album for the Beatles, and it was on the tour for this record that they realized that they couldn't reproduce the sounds, and and it, it, it uh, eventually led to them stopping touring. So this is the beginning of a lot of things. Well, 1966, I believe their last show was at uh, Candlestick Park, if I'm not mistaken. They never played live again except on the rooftop of Abbey Road in, I believe, 1969. I want to talk a little bit about the, where the title came from. The title came yeah. from the sort of like a pun on a gun and a turntable. 
a turntable a turntable revolving i i never really totally got what it was about but it makes sense and it also was kind of i also heard it was sort of symbolic of the fact that the beatles were taking turns being front and center on this album more so they'd been before george had three oh, songs interesting. george had three songs instead of two and they were three for the most part i guess there's at least two really good ones i'm we can get into the rest of the tracks. And the artwork was pretty revolutionary for the time. It was done by Klaus Vormann, the the guy that did... He was our friend from the Hamburg days. And it's pretty... That's right. It's pretty... It's one of the most iconic album covers ever made, as far as I'm concerned. It might be my favorite Beatles album cover. Like, it's one of those ones that you look at... It's like watching The Usual Suspects. Every time you look at it, you notice something different. It's, it's, it's really cool. In fact, I this is uh, a tribute to how powerful the artwork is i saw ozzy osbourne on his tv show with it with a revolver t-shirt on it was kind of cool it's like hey i know that album cover <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty cool hey you know that uh klaus vorman too like he ended up uh collaborating uh he was a musician too like not just an artist uh like one like his artistic um uh, uh, his artistic uh aspirations extended to uh music as well and he ended up playing in plastic ono band on bass i knew he played on how do you sleep at night on a mad john lennon's imagine I've seen the video of him and George on on that one. So yeah, uh, there's where the the album title came from. You want to hear some of the the uh, the potential album titles? Lay it on me. Uh, Lennon wanted to call it Four Sides to the Circle." (laughs) It's 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 okay. It's okay. The group originally wanted to call it "Abracadabra," and then they discovered somebody else had already used it, so they changed their mind. McCartney no, wanted to call no. it Magic Circle. Star said jokingly we should call it After After Geography. What? Why? I guess because the Stones had an album called After Aftermath. I don't. That's Ringo being weird. Oh, uh, that's that's not a good joke. Sorry, Ringo. Some of the some of the other titles in the in the queue were Bubble and Squeak. Nope. Bubble and wait, Bubble and Squeak, dude. That sounds that sounds like an adult film. I don't really. <laughs> <laughs> no i like that name like we should uh, yeah that's a better name we should no, we should have no. called the podcast bubble and squeak <laughs> <laughs> that would be a whole different thing a uh, beatles on safari which i don't know that might have worked at an earlier time not now it sounds too much like surf and safari yeah freewheeling beatles which sounds like freewheeling yeah dylan that yeah that was a dylan and then yeah, Pendulum, no. Pendulum, which was later used by uh, CCR for the album where where the other guy, the other guys in the band decided they wanted to start writing songs, and it sucked. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, did you know that uh, that originally they wanted to record this album at Stax in Memphis? Oh yeah, that's a that's a famous like blues stu- uh, studio, isn't it? Well, blues and R and B, like like uh, early funk. Um, you know that that that's like Isaac Hayes and like Booker T and the MGs. Oh, I love Isaac Hayes, even though he's a right? Scientologist. Oh man, you know, remind me at some point to tell the story about going to Ardent Records and like hanging out in the mastering suite there. Like it was awesome, Larry Nix. I'll tell you about that someday. It'll be a good story. But Stax in Memphis, they wanted, you know, Paul McCartney. I think especially was kind of driving this. Um, I could be wrong about that, but. Uh, they wanted to try and capture like some of the really uh, good bass sounds that was coming uh, across uh, from America. 
So they were trying to record at Stax, and then kind of word kind of got out, and like people swamped the place, so they couldn't record there. Oh, um, that, was, that was a thing at the time. So then they like tried to maybe do at at uh, Atlantic Studios, and then they were trying maybe to get into Motown, but it didn't work out. So they eventually, you know, did it at Abbey Road. Well, it sounds great at Abbey Road. Now you wanted to talk about some of the B side, the 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 singles, the A and B sides from this period, because I don't know. Maybe you have it pulled up in front of you. I don't know I, if there were any singles. From, like maybe Yellow Submarine was a single and Taxman. I don't know what the singles were from this album, but I know the ones that were not on the album were were every bit as popular as anything they'd ever done. Well, keep in mind that this is in a time period where, like, um, with, like, music releases, they would release singles and they would release albums. Yeah. It wasn't normal to have singles on an album. So during these same sessions, they recorded uh, Paperback Rider and Rain, which are arguably two of the coolest like Beatles songs uh, as well. Oh, yeah. They, they they are stellar songs. Rain. Rain is another one of London Lennon's most underrated, underplayed songs. It was a B-side. And I think your dad even mentioned it. Uh, I saw something on social media where he was talking about he posted rain and i agree it was it was an incredible song paperback writer what a great song and in this day and age i guess it's changed more now than it used to be your hit songs were on the album so people would buy the album the beatles had so many extra songs they would just they would put out singles and then put out albums which were completely independent of their singles absolutely i mean keep in mind that like these artists at the time and especially the beatles and they weren't the only ones doing this they, i would say i would put like the kinks in that category uh the rolling stones um there was like this machine happening and there was other bands doing this you know obviously but like there was like uh, they would like record sometimes like three records a year oh my God. and singles in a year like it's amazing. Like bands now, sometimes they take like two years, three years to make one record. These guys were like making albums three times a year. It was in- incredible. And on top of that, they were touring. Like it's no wonder that, that they were like, you know, we're not going to tour anymore. We just want to record. <laughs> you know, we've arrived. Let's let's do this. But I did want to bring up like there were some cool things about both Paperback Writer and Rain that I just wanted to point out from a, a recording standpoint. And one of those is with Paper Rec Writer on our cover of the of the Larry Norman song, uh, six sixty six that you and I, J Mac, did with uh, with Tomorrow Never Knows. Available on uh, YouTube. Available on YouTube and Spotify, Apple Music, like all the places where you can find it. Look it up. Tomorrow Never Knows, number one. TNKSongs.com. We would love for you to listen to it. If it sucks, tell us. If you like it, tell us. When we did 666, we kind of were like going for like that Beatles uh, psychedelic vibe. And the bass sound on that was just as much influenced by this song, Paperback Rider. Oh, I, I can totally hear it. I can totally hear it. That, that riff is suspiciously familiar to Paperback <laughs> Rider, but not, but it's not plagiarism. You can't, no, it's... It's inspired by that same yes. kind of vibe, right? And... I know that they were trying to get more bass frequencies. Like that was a difficult thing for them to do at this time. Now we just take everything for granted in what is able to be captured in audio. At that point, they were still like um, uh, innovating some of these frequencies to get these frequencies that you would hear in the normal world onto recorded musics or onto recorded music. And one of the things that they would do um, at that time, uh, or one of the tricks that they tried with the bass line for the song is they actually used 
a loudspeaker to record it. Did did you know this? No, but it's a, it's a fat sound. I love it. So what they did is they took the speaker cabinet for the bass. And by the way, he wasn't playing his Hofner anymore at this point. At this point, he had gotten um, a, a Rickenbacker bass. And it was a 1964 Rickenbacker uh, 4001S. Um, it's the same bass that you see him playing in like I Am the Walrus. It's the same one in Hello Goodbye. And ironically, it's the same bass that he played in Wings. Um, he sanded it down later on. I then, love, I love the Rickenbacker bass sound. I think Getty so Lee. Punchy. I think Getty Lee played one for a while in Rush. I don't think he did in the later times. But they, they're not only do they sound cool, they're awesome to look at. The Rickenbacker basses are really cool. They're just so punchy. Uh, Chris Squire and Yes, he was famous uh, for playing one as well. Um, and so the way that they try to capture this punchy bass sound is a, you know, a, a speaker cabinet. In case you didn't know. It's essentially a microphone in reverse. So what they did is they took a a big, huge speaker cabinet, like a 15-inch speaker or a 10-inch speaker, something like that, and they placed it in front of the speaker cabinet for the bass, and they ran it in like it was a microphone and recorded it and just made it like, you know, basically what they built was would be for like all for like all you um, uh, audio tech uh, nerds is a pressure mic. I think would be the technical Mm. term for it. Same thing, same concept that they use to record kick drums now. And that's part of the main sound for that. So I thought that was super cool that that ended up on Paperback Rider because it really is a distinctive bass sound. And probably one of the first times that you really have the bass having a front and center stage for a Beatles song. So let's start with track one. Let's start at the beginning. Tax Man. George wrote this song about at the time the the tax rates in England were like 95% or something ridiculous. So if you made a, a pound or a dollar, they would take 95 cents out of it. And, and I guess he first started to realize how little they were actually taking in of all the uh, money they were making. Cause they were making a lot of money and they were bringing home almost none of it. And he was kind of angry, typical George fashion, kind of snarky. What do you got to say about this song? I know you got some thoughts on this one. I do have some thoughts, and I do want to mention that uh, maybe after this song, we should talk about the two singles that were recorded before this record came out, um, if we're going to go chronological, but just remind me, and you let me know what you want to do. But let's talk about Taxman. So I was reading about this earlier, and and, um, I knew that George, uh, this is a George song, which is really unique for a George song to start off uh, a Beatles album, by the way. I think the breakdown that they had uh, as part of their contract was that um, that there was a certain number of songs that Lennon McCartney would get per record. They got the lion's share of them. Uh, I think Ringo was required to have one song that he could sing, and George <laughs> was two for, 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 for each album. Um, but there's actually three George songs on this record. Yes. And he starts off, which is a new thing for George because, you know, look, I we both love the Beatles. Uh, I'm I'm sure there's Beatles historians out there that might even find, you know, inaccuracies with our stories. But, you know, let's just tell them the way that we've found them. And I think that this was one of the times that George is really starting to come into his own with actually writing a great song. You know, up until that point, he had been struggling and was wasn't necessarily one of the better players or writers in the Beatles. Am, am I wrong, j No, you're right. I mean, he, his Don't Bother Me was the... And that was a few years back. I I'm sure he had a couple. He had a couple good songs on Help, in here and there. But but you're right. Taxman was really. I mean, it's one of the best tracks on the album. Not not some of some of McCart- Paul McCartney and John Lennon's tracks. Non notwithstanding, Taxman is a great album opener. 
I love it's his true. I love his snarky lyrics. He's just <laughs> George. I think he got the the moniker of the Quiet Beetle because he just didn't talk as much as John and Paul. But but George was by no means quiet, and he had a very biting sense of humor. Which, if you listen to the lyrics of this song, yeah, he's 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 pretty po'd about uh, all the money he found out he's paying to uh, the tax man. I, I looked it up, and it was apparently ninety six pence to every pound. Oh my god! They were taking because he was what he was in um, what was called a, a super tax bracket at that. Yeah, point. yeah, he was making you so know, much. What, yeah, I mean, this is what led to a lot of uh, rock stars, especially going and finding tax shelters in the in the coming years. These, you know, UK uh, uh, acts and leaving That's why Exile in Main Street was recorded. You know, in, it was in France, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to mention. The Stones eventually, I think, moved out of the country or started recording out of the country so they didn't have to pay taxes because the the tax rate on the wealthy was so out of control. And, you know, I mean, for the Beatles, when they none of them were wealthy up to the point of the fame that they got. So you can just... the. The, what they were giving to the government was probably more than they that their parents had made in a lifetime. You're probably right about that. That's a really interesting way to think about it too. For these, you know, working class heroes uh, from from Liverpool, you know, I, I don't know that they would have identified that way. But you know, they they grew up in a in an area in a in a town in England. Um, that correct me if I'm wrong, but I think was historically very kind of blue collar. Uh, I think there was a lot of dock workers there. Was on the on the sea. And so for them to suddenly be thrust into the limelight, but then have to pay all these taxes, it probably hurt really bad. And on top of that, I don't know if the, at this point, if they knew, um, and maybe they did, of just how bad some of the business deals had gone um, up to this point from their manager, Brian Epstein. Like he lost hundreds of millions of dollars for the Beatles with bad deals. Did I don't you know that. I don't think they knew at this point, but they, they in the coming years, they would certainly find out. One of the interesting tidbits I have on this is that the lead guitar, the very memorable scorching lead guitar was not played by George. It was played by Paul, which uh, if you read uh, Here, There, and Everywhere, the book by Jeff Emmerich, George repeatedly tried for quite a while and couldn't figure out Hours. what to do. Yeah. And Paul was like, give me the give me the guitar and just, just threw something down, which you know it probably PO'd uh, George a little bit. <laughs> it, had, it had to rankle him a little bit. Well, I mean, especially since he was like the youngest one in the Beatles, right? I think when they went to uh, Germany, I think he was only like 17, maybe 16 years old. So by this point, he was still in his early 20s and he was like younger than the rest of them by a lot when you're in like that age, right? Like uh, a year or two difference can be a lot when you're that age. Yeah, yeah. So you got anything else you want to say about this before we move on to track two? Well, I I did look up a quote from this uh, from this Jeff uh, Jeff uh, Emmerich book um, here there and everywhere that I thought was really interesting. You brought up the fact that uh, Paul uh, Paul McCartney played the lead on this, and it, and also too, I just wanted to point out they actually looped it. It's the same exact lead at the end of the song. Ah, yeah, right, I, yeah, it is the same. Now that I think about but, it. Yeah, and apparently it was George Martin's idea as a producer. He made um, a decision for the efficiency of the recording sessions, like. George, you've been doing this for hours. I'm paraphrasing here. George, you, you, you've been doing this for hours. Why don't we let Paul, do you want to take a shot at it and see what you can do? Maybe it went something down kind of like that. Um, but uh, what he, what Emmerich said was they were sitting in the control, in the control room 
And Emmerich couldn't help but agree when he heard Paul Solo. He's like, Paul Solo was stunning in its uh, ferocity. His guitar playing had a fire and energy that his younger bandmate rarely matched and was accomplished in just a take or two. <laughs> so I'm sure if George heard that, he would be really pissed. Sucks to be George here once again, but Paul was older, a couple years older. So we know what a couple years can make in songwriting ability and musicianship. One other thing I wanted to mention about this song was uh, was about the solo. Um, so I think it was maybe in 2005, 2006, somewhere in there. I'm in 2007. Um, Cirque du Soleil debuted a, a show in Las Vegas, um, and it was based on the Beatles and their music. And one of the things that they did is they took all of the, 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 the stems, the separate parts from the Beatles songs, and they remixed them. And it's a really interesting uh, album, which at some point we'll go through that track by track too. But one of the things I wanted to point out is that this solo actually was used really effectively in a mashup Beatles song from that record where it was used on the song Drive My Car from uh, Rubber Soul. And the solo sounds awesome. Oh, wow. With that song. Wow. That's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. So uh, all you Beatles fans, go out there and look it up and and notice that in there. It sounds pretty sweet. Okay. Track two, Eleanor Rigby. This to me is where you know how yesterday was the moment where Paul had to step out from the group for the first time and he was kind of self-conscious about it. Elnor yeah. Rigby takes yesterday and just amplifies it. I don't think there's any Beatle on. I think it's just an orchestra on him singing. This is pure McCartney right here. And it's very dark and kind of frankly depressing as some of the other songs on this album are, but it's, it's so good. I mean, the, the, the line Father McKenzie wiping his hands as he walks from the grave. No one was saved. Wow, dude, that's a long way from, I want to hold your hand. You know, that's a really good point, J Mag. I, I had at this point, was there any songs on, on, on any of their albums that were like, had these dark stories associated with them? I guess we should have done our research. <laughs> I don't, well, I, I really don't think so. Yes. Yesterday was very, was the most morose song I can think of at that, up to that point. And there were some songs early Norwegian on. Wood, maybe. Yeah. Norwegian Wood. That was about an affair. We can talk about Rubber Soul another time. I guess you'd have to go to Rubber Soul to maybe find um, something of this kind of mood, but McCartney nails it here. This is, it's this true. is really, really good. And it's all, it's all Paul. I don't believe, I mean, it's got Lennon on the credit, but I don't think Lennon. I think this was, was 90 90- of their songwriting yeah. uh, partnership, right? Anything they wrote together, they just shared the credit. Even if uh, one of the other ones wrote the bulk of the song, which this one is obviously a Paul McCartney song. Yeah. So anything you want to add to that? Yeah. There was a couple uh, cool tidbits. I find out about, it, uh, about this song. Um, uh, one of the things I thought was interesting is that when, when he was writing it, and you know how it is sometimes when you're writing a song, um, sometimes you won't, you won't have the perfect lyrics for a line, but you kind of just want to fill out the syncopation where you think like the melody might take it in that song. Like sure. you have the chord progression, but you don't know how, how the words are going to fit. Sure. Yet, right? So you, you say, you just kind of like put the phrasing in there, but you, it might not be the actual words. Exactly. You know, um, I know Paul McCartney did that with, you brought up uh, yesterday was that way. I think the original lyrics for the song were like scrambled eggs. All I have to eat are <laughs> scrambled eggs. <laughs> right. So there was some of those things in this song. Um, and the original name for Eleanor Rigby was actually Miss Daisy Hawkins. Did you know that? 
Well, that's a terrible name. <laughs> that's a terrible name. But it fits in. Miss Daisy Hawkins, right? Like you could sing it in that spot. But let's just, you know, I'm glad that he replaced that. And originally, the minister, I think this is correct. The written the minister was not Father McKenzie. It was actually Father McCartney. You're right. Yes, it was. I forgot what I read that. And for whatever reason, he changed it. I guess it does kind of pull you out of the song a little bit to hear Father McCartney. But it, I wish there was an outtake somewhere of him singing that. Maybe there is, but I've, I've not heard it if there is. I don't know if it ever made it into the studio that way. I think that was while he was writing it. Um, but let's see if we can track it down. That might be kind of cool to talk about at some point. One of the things about the studio that really stood out to me, um, because, I, I, again, I think one of the things that makes, like, you know, why are we talking about the Beatles anyway, all this time after they've been around? Yes, they were the first boy band. Yes, you know, um, they were one of the first huge superstars after Elvis to, like, really yeah. take the world by storm. Yeah. But I think that we've touched on it in other podcasts is, like, they actually changed the rules on the way that, that a lot of music was made. And this song, even in its like beautiful uh, string arrangement, actually broke the rules. Did you know that? Explain. So at EMI Studios, which is what Abbey Road was called at the time, which is called uh, EMI Studios, they were controlled by uh, EMI. I forget what it stands for, um, but they were a company that was pretty successful um, throughout the record, the, this new uh, music uh, industry that was developing at this point. And uh, the Beatles were actually on Parlophone, which was their comedy uh, imprint, actually. Uh, Decca Records had turned them down and, you know, all these things. And they're at, the, they're at this EMI Studios in London, right? Famous place. Crosswalk is out in front of it. You've seen it um, in pictures before, I'm sure. You, you've walked it. I did. I, I, I was there. You know, we, we should talk about that at some point because it is fun to watch people take pictures on the, on the crosswalk. And yeah, I, I took one, too, when I was there. Um, but anyway, so they're, they're, they're at the studio and EMI at the point, they had all these rules about um, how far away, say, a ribbon mic could be placed to a speaker cabinet or to uh, an instrument. And they would actually get out their measuring tapes and they would have to stand that far away. Wow. It's pretty, pretty, pretty incredible. You know, and, and I, I think that this, you know, I'm sure it had a lot to do um, with protecting their investment because recording gear very expensive now to buy analog gear then was even more expensive. Yes. It was a big investment. They didn't want to lose that. You know, one of these mics could be thousands of dollars, right? But um, they brought in string players uh, for this part. And these guys were professional musicians that likely played in like the London Symphony Orchestra, you know, things like that. And they put the mics like right up against the cellos, you know, and against these instruments. And it made the players uncomfortable. They were like, we're not supposed to play this close to it. It's, it's going to sound like trash, right? But George Martin was insistent, right? And, and, and his team of uh, engineers, which at this point was Jeff Emmerich, uh, about getting that certain sound, that, that really percussive sound that makes Eleanor Rigby's string arrangement what it is. I mean, this was a sound that was new to have that close up. It influenced string arrangement for years, you know? Mm -hmm. And I just thought it was funny that it would make these players, these staunch, like, you know, classical musicians uncomfortable. And yet they did it and they made one of the, you know, arguably one of the most iconic Beatles tracks. Well, if you listen to that song carefully, in fact, I think on Anthology 2, there's a there's a mix of just the strings without the vocals. And you're you're hearing clarity on classical instruments that I don't think that 
you had heard up to that point because the mics were so close. I don't know if it was just the type or how close they were putting it. But I imagine as a classical musician, you're, you're worried you're going to hit the mic. I mean, that's my fear. Sometimes with Parkinson's when I'm playing my guitar, I'm like, can't, can't get too close to the mic. Um, I, can't, I can only imagine the nerves. You're recording for the Beatles, and the mics are up close. I can, I can imagine it could put you off your game. Absolutely. Um, but I'm glad that they took the risk. You know, I, there's in that Jeff Emmerich book, he talks a lot about like taking the risks during these sessions. He was only 21 at the time. Wow. Right. Like this could have been his job on the line, but like it was the Beatles. So like if any band was going to get away with it, it'd be the Beatles. Did, hey, here's something I did hear about this song. Did you know that in the sometime in the 1980s, um, a grave was discovered at a cemetery at a, at a cemetery in Liverpool. No, Fulton. No, Eleanor Rigby on the grave. Think that was Did some. You know that? Think that was some rando nodding going on. See episode four or five, whatever it was. <laughs> It could have been, man. You know, some people are like, you know, they're pretty sure that Paul McCartney, like, he just came up with that name. But, you know, it's possible that he passed through that cemetery as a kid and it stuck in his brain and he, like, called it up at some point, you know, subconsciously. But oh, it's sure. Kind of, like, weird, right? Oh, sure. That's that's pretty trippy. Okay, moving on to track three. I feel this is one of I'm, on, I'm, I'm Only Sleeping is one of Lennon's most underrated tracks. It's such a good dreamy sleepy song it almost could have been on the white album it seems like it came from an older lennon at times than the 1966 lennon but it's i would argue that it did show up on the white album j mac i'm only are uh i'm so tired yep like i think there's some some uh synchronicity there some uh some bookending happening i feel it's one of his most underrated songs and i'm and and i remember watching on the Beatles anthology, I think they played that song over footage of the Beatle protest going on in the, in the, in, in 66 on their tour. And it really fits. You could see how Lennon was feeling very cornered. He said publicly that help the song help was about him wanting to kind of, he was, he was trapped. And I think I'm only sleeping was almost part of that same narrative. You got any info on this track? Uh, I would totally agree with that. I think that one of the th- one of the unique things about this song is that uh, uh, he actually sounds like he's tired when he's singing it. Yep. Right. Like it's almost like he's method acting. I wonder. You know, like you know, maybe he was high when he was doing it. I don't know. This this would have been about the time that they would have started doing that stuff um, while they were in the studio. I don't think it'd come to a, it. It would come to a head in the Sgt. Pepper sessions, but you know, it's possible. There's so many cool things about this song, and I agree, it is uh, underrated. This, did you know that this is the actual, I think, if I'm not mistaken, this is the first Beatles track that has a backwards guitar solo on I was going to mention that today. I was out driving. I listened to Revolver twice. And you know, it's subtle. You don't really think of it because, I mean, you think of Rain, the back masking of the the vocal in Rain, the Beatles single, from about the same time period i think it was a b-side b-side well, we should talk about rain that's uh, that is one of the ones that, that, that i wanted to talk about okay we'll do that but let's finish with this one so yeah i mean it's very subtle it kind of comes in and comes out but it's very it gives this sort of sleepy dreamy kind of very stoned mm-hmm. sort of like nyquil feel to the whole thing oh that's interesting so you know 
you know what you made me think of when you talk about the night and uh the nyquil or the nyquil is it, it makes me think of kind of like this cough syrupy kind of music right yes i'm a firm believer um and i don't think this is too much of a jump this is not anything new that i did that i thought of myself but if you think about shoegaze music, it really is kind of the natural um, uh, evolution of psychedelic rock. Would you agree with that? I could see that. The, the and this of, is the... almost like like pieces of this end up in influence the artists like in the late eighties and the nineties that end up doing like this you know shoegazy thing like backwards guitar and noise and all kinds of stuff. Like this is one of the first times that this is showing up in a song that would uh, be released to millions of people. Well, I would say that it probably started earlier with Pink Floyd. I think Pink Floyd, they were obvious fans of what Lennon was doing. And I feel like there were some there were some moments in the pink you know, the the four great Pink Floyds, Animals, The Wall, Dark Side of the Moon, Wish You Were Here. I could definitely hear the Lennon influence in that, the Nyquil effect, as you call it, or as I called it. I, I totally agree. And I, I want to take a little rabbit trail real quick here with this Go for album. It. So I mentioned earlier that this was the first album that Jeff Jeff Emmerich was the lead uh, engineer on. Maybe I didn't mention that. I mentioned he was 21, but he was 21 years old, and this is the first Beatles record that he was the lead engineer. Up until this point, every Beatles uh, album, I believe every Beatles album, had been engineered by a dude named Norman Smith. Are you, are you, are you familiar with this guy's name? Yeah, he was, he was in the book uh, that Jeff Emmerich wrote. Exactly. And this is actually something that I think I might have learned from this book. So so I mentioned that, you know, EMI had all these rules about the microphones. They had all these kinds of rules about how you can work inside of their studio system as well. I don't know if you knew this, but uh, Norman Smith, up until this point, he had been an engineer for the Beatles. Well, this guy, he wanted to get into producing as well. But EMI had a had a rule, right? They were like... Uh, uh, you can't be an engineer and a producer, so you have to choose one. So Norman Smith had found this band in like the avant-garde scene of London, and he wanted to produce them. So he decided to lay down his position as lead Beatles engineer to go and produce this band. And at that point, Jeff Emmerich took over. So like on the Revolver sessions, it was like he was like just hitting the ground running. He had been an assistant to that point. But I wanted to point out, and this is why I want to take the rabbit trail. This dude, Norman Smith, do you know what band it was that he found that he wanted to produce? Don't tell me it's Pink Floyd. It was Pink Floyd. Holy crap. <laughs> I love it. Serendipity, dude. Right? It all, it, it, all, it all comes back. It all comes back to the Beatles, dude. It all comes back to the damn Beatles. Yeah, man. I mean, the Pink Floyd would end up recording many albums at Abbey Road as well. I mean, Dark Side of the Moon was recorded there. We'll talk about that record at some point, 100%. Oh, that's definitely <laughs> that's definitely got to be it's it's on the list. Tied for first. Anyway, I thought that would be that would be a totally, you know, totally uh, interesting little route trail to take. Anyway, so so what's the next song? Love You Too. You thought it was called Love to You initially. That's what you told me when I told you that. that and, and once again, I'm going to say this is a very <laughs> love to you. It makes more sense. Love to you. It does make more sense. I don't know, dude. Sometimes I don't, you know, I mix up words sometimes. It's weird. Like, but uh, yeah, for for whatever reason, this whole time I thought it was called Love to You, but it's called Love You Too. Well, Interesting. Now, well, now this was a track when we were over at your house that got skipped because I remember not hearing it till I bought the 
the uh, the CD for myself when I was about 19 or so. And I was immediately struck by how how Indian this track is. This is this is more traditionally Indian, I believe, than within you without you. And I did look this up. George did play sitar on this. And if you if you play sitar, and I know there's probably nobody out there listening that that does, this is some really good technical sitar playing. Of course, Ravi Shankar was his teacher. But my thought when I was listening to the into the car today, I thought no, he must have he must have farmed this out, got some Indian musicians. No, this is George all the way. And in the beginning, I'll, let me explain a little bit about Indian music. Indian classical music, there's movements to it. And the, 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 initial, the initial introduction phase to the scale that you're using is called alap. It's, it's, there's no, no rhythm, no rhythmic structure. It's just free-form alap. notes, alap. And George alap. does a really very short, but very it's very good alop in the beginning of the song. Just just no rhythmic structure, just just notes, just bending, improvising. It's an amazing track. I can see why it didn't get more popular because it definitely is the most foreign sounding song on here. But it is really good if you dig deep, and it's really it's it's above the Beatles' pay grade. I got to tell you, this is this is a really standout track for me because as a lover of Indian music that. I mean, you you hear no Norwegian wood. You hear within you, without you. You don't ever really hear anybody talk about this track, and it's really, really good. And it's it's almost unknown to people who aren't really familiar with the Beatles. I totally agree with that. You know, this is one of those songs. Um, I feel like for me, um, you know, we've been liking the Beatles for a long time, Jamie. Yes. Right? Like, yes. It's, it, it's part of our life for sure. It's part of my DNA. Hundred percent. Like it influ- like I'm sitting in my studio here and I have like a couple Beatles relics around and I have like psychedelic grill cloth on my speakers for like my vintage like system and like I got the, like a Beatles section only on my records like you know what I'm saying like I got a, a Hofner bass with a bass man sticker on it like Paul McCartney it, it's pretty it's pretty bad well, well I've got right? a poster from the White Album staring at me right over here and I've got <laughs> I've got my my Rickenbacker guitar which was made famous by the Beatles is it's in the studio around here somewhere. So yeah, I'm surrounded and I'm doing music. Almost, I mean, I, I was into music before the Beatles, but I got to tell you, once I heard the Beatles and their later stuff, that was it. I was in, I was completely in hundred percent, man. Like the, the genesis of uh, of us working together is because we loved the Beatles music. And I, I got to tell you, there's a few Beatles songs like after living with the Beatles music for a few decades and just letting it soak in and like listening to, you know, the songs that catch your ear right away. And I still love those, you know, but uh, like Penny Lane or, you know, something like that. But uh, like this is one of those songs like a, a lot of George's songs. I didn't realize how great they were until I got a little bit older and had sat with the music for a while. And this is one of them. Yeah, it definitely is because it, it the casual listener is not going to take the time to really sit down and listen to this song. And once again, to to go back to the Indian thing, there's no no chord changes in this. It's it's in the key of C, which is traditionally what Indian Indian instruments are either tuned to C or C sharp usually. Um it's there's no chords. It's it's indicative or it's like precursor to things that would come later. And it's so good, and I guess it's because you don't hear it so much. And when you do hear it, like when I first heard it, I was like, I've never heard this. And I've listened to 
breakfast with the Beatles on the local radio station. I went over to your house. Like, I, your dad even had this CD over your house, and I never heard this track. It never got played. I'm not. Well, I think, again, um, you know, it might have just been skipped over, like, oh, this is this weird sitar stuff. Right. Because it doesn't sound like normal pop music. And, you know, there's going to be people that listen to this and they're going to go going to go and listen to this song and be like, that's shit. Like, let's just be honest. It sucks. But, you know, maybe not. I, I think it's actually a really beautiful song. Um, and I think what's interesting, too, I don't know if you realize this, but it's actually the first song that George wrote for the Beatles that the sitar was intended to be play on played on. Um, when they did Norwegian Wood, it was kind of just a, kind of uh, an afterthought. They were like looking for a sound on it. And we'll talk about this more, but I think they found it like on a coffee break and just brought it back and like, this will sound cool. Um, but this song, Love You Too, was written to have sitar and uh, a tabla on it. Well, what I, what I read at two different places was that George actually wrote it on the sitar, which is kind of cool because wow. honestly, honestly, I don't really write music on the sitar. I write it on the guitar and then go, how can I fit a sitar into this? But George actually sat down and wrote it like a raga, which is, a, which is the traditional Indian uh, classical uh, form. But I, I just, I mean, you're right. I don't think it's got a lot of people are going to dig it that much. Cause it is, it's pretty, it's, it's a deep cut, but it is really good. So I, if you haven't heard it, Google, or go to YouTube, love you too, not love to you <laughs> off Revolver. And not love you too, the band, love you too. Yeah. But it I do, I, but I do love. Song. I, I mean, it is one of those songs like I could hear Radiohead covering this song and doing a phenomenal like tension uh, arrangement of it. It's like, it's not like a, it's not like a, like a normal song at all. No, it's not. Okay. You ready to move on to track five? Let's move on to track five. This is one of Paul McCartney's all-time great love songs, here, there, and everywhere. It's just, there's there's not a person in the world that can hear this song and not like it. It's it's so smooth. The vocals are just vintage Paul. It sounds like they're playing Rickenbacker guitars on it. It's just, it's it, it, this could actually have been on Help or maybe even Hard Day's Night in a different, slightly different production. Don't you agree? I could totally get behind that. Um, and I also think it's just, it's a damn near perfect song. Yeah. I mean, like it like tricks you the whole time, the way it like changes keys and then like flows back into the next key without like, even like trying is just brilliant. I, I do believe that you could put this on any Beatle album of any era, say for maybe meet the Beatles, probably, probably you could even put it on that and it would fit no matter where you put it. It's just one of those timeless tracks. I could put it up there with Lennon's in my life, just a timeless song that to my knowledge was never a single, but it was, it's just, it's, this is why you get albums, kids. This is why you buy the whole damn album, not go on iTunes and cherry pick, buy the whole, if you're cherry picking Beatles songs, shame on you. Buy the whole <laughs> album. This, if there's a reason to buy the whole album here, there, and everywhere is your reason. Here's your sign. I totally agree with that. You know, um, something I was reminded of today when I was listening to it and doing a little research on it again, was that, Excuse me. It seems really, really uh, apparent to me now um, that this song was likely influenced by Brian Wilson. Yes, like, I can see. I can see that. Beach Boys, yeah, right? Beach Boys. Um, I mean, most people are familiar, at least by title alone, the album "Pet Sounds." 
And of course, the most famous track off of that record is God Only Knows. I mean, dude. Talk about timeless. Right? Like, there's there's very few songs that are in the league of God Only Knows. No. And Paul McCartney would agree with me. You're right. But but I definitely think he was channeling channeling a little bit of Brian Wilson. I could totally see that. I could, I, you know, I mean, I, the, Beach, the Beach Boys should have covered it. <laughs> Well, I mean, they were both, uh, at least uh, in America, they were distributed by Capitol Records. And I don't know if it was something that was generated for publicity or if it was just like a friendly thing, you know, because they were friends, um, Brian Wilson and and Paul McCartney. Um, But, you know, when Rubber Soul came out, Brian Wilson, as the story goes, listened to it. And he was like, well, we got to do something like this. And they did Pet Sounds. And then like, revolver was the answer to pet sounds i mean that was part of the reason why they took more time in the studio was yeah. to like yeah you know what i mean and this song is so apparent of it it makes me think of songs from pet sounds like uh uh you you still believe in me and uh caroline no you know it's like this whole suite of sounds like all these songs fit together to tell a story um don't talk put your head on my shoulder like oh songs yeah yeah record. i know i totally i'm yeah, that I can definitely hear that. It's a great song. So kids, go buy, go buy, go to a store and buy the physical medium. If you're not going to do that, go to iTunes and download the whole damn album. You'll love it. <laughs> or just you know, stream it on Spotify. But hey, dude, you know, um, like go and buy the vinyl. It sounds so much better on vinyl. Yes. Like, go and see if you can find a vintage copy um, before it was digitally remastered. The remastered versions sound amazing. But go and listen to the original mono version. Right. This is one of the albums, by the way, um, my, maybe I should have mentioned this at the beginning, but there's this whole thing about Beatles fanatics where um, up until I mean, really, until Abbey Road, um, all of the Beatles albums were first mastered in mono. And those are the sessions that the Beatles would sit in on or I'm sorry, mixed in mono. And, you know, basically mixing is where you take all the different parts of the music and you set them at the appropriate volume so that they all work together to sound like this beautiful composition, right? And that was a whole process separate from the creation of the music. And the Beatles would sit in um, and give their guidance on how they wanted certain things to sound as far as volumes in the music for the mono mixes. But then the stereo mixes would then be sent to the lower uh, engineers in uh, in uh, Abbey Road Studios or you know EMI at the time, and they would go and experiment, you know, because stereo sound at that point was a new thing. This is one of those albums that has that version of the mono uh, still in it, and uh, there's little subtle things that you can hear in there um, that are differences between uh, the mixes, and this song by the way, sounds beautiful on both the mono and the stereo mixes. It's just a phenomenal song. Well, you know, I never really got the mono stereo thing until I actually compared them on, and then we're getting deep here, but um, for instance, the stereo mixes, they tried to be a little bit too clever, the engineers and some of the early things. And Paul even said that they were fixated with this idea of putting the drums on one side, the bass on another. So it sounded like it was like coming at you from all sides. But it does, lo- and Lennon said this. It loses the rock and roll power because yeah. it, because it's lessened by by half. Well, we'll have a lot to say about this when we talk about Sergeant Pepper. Yes, we will. You ready to move on to the next track? Uh, yes, I just wanted to mention one other thing with this song, and you can edit this out, or or, or you know maybe we'll just leave it in. Um, do you, have I ever told you the first time that I heard this song? It wasn't when I listened to Revolver. No, where where'd you hear it? 
So I don't know if you remember this. So there were yeah, in St. Louis, you know, for those of you that are listening that are, you know, old St. Louisans, uh, we we had this uh this this TV channel, uh channel eleven. Oh yeah. It was, it was an independent station that uh would just like play all kinds of movies on Saturdays and Sundays. And one of the movies that they played several times that I saw as a kid was this Paul McCartney movie from the eighties. Do you know what I'm talking about? Give my regards to Broad Street. That's right. So yep. we were watching uh, Give My Regards to Broad Street, and there's a sequence in this movie, and you should go and look this up. You know, if you're listening to this and you haven't skipped ahead, go to YouTube, look up Paul McCartney, Give My Regards to Broad Street, and look up the medley from the movie. This song is in the medley. And I think in the medley they do Yesterday, then it goes to Here, There, and Everywhere, and then it ends on Wonderlust, which is from uh, Tug of War by Paul McCartney. Great song. Great song. One of my favorite Paul McCartney songs. What was unique about this medley, you know, it's kind of like there's this movie moment where like Ringo Starr is actually there playing drums, right? This is in the 80s. When oh, the that's right. That's right. Ringo came. I remember this. <laughs> Ringo's playing drums and Paul's like, no sticks, only brushes. And he's like going and there's a like comedy moment where he's looking for brushes and stuff. Um, but meanwhile, Paul's playing these songs. But what was really interesting about that time, too, like this was one of the first times that I saw what it looked like inside a, of, a, of, of a recording studio. Because it's this whole sequence where there's like guys in the control room, like moving knobs and turning dials on compressors. And there's like guys in a studio like Paul McCartney's playing the guitar. And then in a separate room are these horn players playing. So it was really one of those like moments where I started to wrap my brain around the idea of going in and recording music. And it was this song. So when I heard the song on Revolver, I already had this connection to it. And I was like, this is what I want to do. Like, I want to write these songs. That's awesome. I thought that was, that was totally, you know, really like a, like a, like a crazy moment. No, that's great. Okay. We're moving on to the Ringo track, Yellow Submarine. And my little boy loved this song. When we were in the car today, we played it twice, and I said, "I said uh, this is a this is kind of the Beatles version of a kid song, and it really is." They made a movie which is not really for kids. If you watch it, it's kind of <laughs> kind of freaky, actually. No, you definitely want to um, be properly prepared before you see that movie. <laughs> if but, you catch my drift, but there's nothing. Yeah, but there's nothing fancy about this song. It's just Ringo singing about a yellow submarine and. I remember this is one that even my very conservative parents could not object to. They were like, well, they don't talk about drugs. <laughs> They're not Except saying anything about it. Is a yellow submarine a joint? I don't know. <laughs> but, oh, but that's, a, that's a funny thought. You know, it could have been veiled uh, lyrics about a joint. You know what I, what I think is interesting is that it starts off like a kid's song, but it kind of descends into like this Monty Python kind of a thing by the middle of it. In a yellow I mean? submarine. <laughs> Ra-ha! Yeah, it's pretty cornball, and I love it, though, because it sounds like they're all hooched up, like they're all drunk. And wasn't why don't you speak to the, the, the antics behind the scenes? I know a little bit about this, but there's a crowd recorded in the in the in the take and it's actually there's actually a really a, really a crowd in the studio. And it's a pro, it's a pretty famous crowd, if I'm remembering correctly. Oh, absolutely. So this was a song um, like they invited a bunch of their friends in. Because it was it was kind of like a sing along, right? Um, it, it, so like you know there was people in that room, uh, like Mick Jagger was there, Brian Jones, both from the Rolling Stones, um, Mick Jagger's girlfriend at the time, uh, Marianne Faithful was there, 
Patty Boyd, uh, George's wife, yep. who you know famously ended up uh, leaving him for Eric Clapton. Yep, she was there. Um, I think Mal uh, Mal Evans and Neil uh, Aspinall, friends of the Beatles, always there. Um, they were there at the time. There was definitely, um, you know, when I read Jeff Jeff uh, Jeff Jeff Emmerich's book about about the situation, he's talking about um it smelled like weed in the room someone had smoked a, uh, had had snuck a joint into the studio <laughs> you know things like that and then i guess they all raided uh the prop closet and had like all these weird noisemakers and they were just like walking in a parade around the studio we all live in a yellow suburb <laughs> like it's crazy that's pretty cool like moment in like rock history if you think about it <laughs> ridiculous no it is it's great uh i don't think i've got anything else to add to this this is not a studio spectacular performance but it is a very fun track that kids and the grown-ups can listen to and it's let's just let's be honest ringo makes everything fun <laughs> absolutely you know this was probably his audition for uh thomas the tank engine was the song right yeah there we go she said she said which there was ever a song that was confusing to people that didn't know what was going on behind the scenes, this is one because it doesn't make any sense unless you know the story. And I'm going to throw it to you because you know more about the story than I do. It's a catchy song. I mean, it's not gonna it's not gonna win a Grammy or anything, but it's got great guitar sound, great uh, kind of rhythmic changes and stuff. Really good vocals, but it is confusing as hell. I'm just going to kind of paraphrase this story. Uh, I you can go and look up uh, Peter Fonda talking about this on uh on several different podcasts and on videos and things but apparently there was this big party going down i forget whose house it was at but you know apparently there was a bunch of like famous dudes there like david crosby and roger mcguinn you know a bunch of the beatles were there and these guys were tripping balls right they were doing some lst and george uh apparently looked over at peter fonda and he was like man <laughs> I feel like I'm dying. Like he, like he was having like an existential crisis full on. And Peter Fonda, who had tried LSD before, he felt like he was kind of like the, the guide, you know, to like talk him through this. Sure, he he's, like, he's he's easy rider. He's easy rider, you know. And this is right about that same time, like you know, counterculture of the '60s is in full swing. These guys are like, you know, experimenting with things that kind of see beyond the normal constraints of society, right? And uh, George is like, I feel like I'm dying, man. And and Peter's like, dude, no, no, no. You're you. I know what it's like to die. I shot myself in the chest when I was like ten or something, something oh weird like that. God. <laughs> he was like, yeah, I like talk about like trying to go on a bad trip. And he was like, you know, I died, like I lost consciousness three times on the on the on the operating table because of <laughs> loss of blood. He's like, so you're not dying, man. This is not dying. You're going to be just fine. And apparently, as the story goes, John Lennon was walking by at that time. And he was like, he looked at John. Peter looked at John. He was like, John, I know what it's like to be dead. And John just quickly looked at him and he was like, you're making me feel like I've never been born. <laughs> <laughs> what is going on in your head to make you think that which is and where all like, these left. bizarre song lyrics came from because let I me mean, literally this song makes no <laughs> you don't know what the hell he's talking about and and you're making me feel like i've, I've never, never been born. born yep track eight track one on side two of the record is 
Good Day Sunshine, if, and if there was ever a quintessential McCartney song, this is it. This could have been a wing song. It's very happy. I probably probably pissed Lennon off a little bit. It was so happy, but it's <laughs> it's great melody, great pian- the piano sound on this song is amazing. It's it almost sounds like an old time saloon piano if you, if you if you if you know what I'm talking about. Really, really fun, great McCartney song. I don't really have any insight into how they recorded it, but it's it it's it could have it could have been on any later Beatles record. It could have been on Abbey Road. It could have been on the White Album. It was a, it's just a great McCartney tune. I'm throwing it to you now, bro. No, it is, man. Um, I think when I listen to this song now, it's just interesting how sparse the uh, instrumentation is on it and on on you know the bulk of these songs. But like, it's really driven by the sound of this piano. Like, it's really distinctive. Um, that's just what I what I take away from it. It was definitely one of the songs that caught my ear uh, first off when I heard the record as a kid. Well, it's got a great chorus. Good day, sunshine. Boom, boom, boom. It's just, it's really catchy. It's like I said, it's McCartney at his happy-go-lucky best. 100%. It's a great track. Track number nine on Revolver. This is another confusing one. And your bird can sing. I don't know if this is some kind of joke song, but the 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 outtake version on the anthology is the best version because they're stoned and they're laughing through the entire take. Have you ever heard that? I know that I have, and I'm going to go back and listen to it. Oh, now. it's hilarious! The, the, arra- about it. the arrangement's a little bit different. I believe they changed the percussion quite a bit. But you can hear them. I, I I wish we could play a clip. In fact, after we're done recording this, I will pull it up. And they're just. They've got to be stoned because they laugh through the entire song, and I almost, I almost wish they would have put that on the album because this. Once you hear the fun stoned laughy version, this song, this the the album version seems pretty calm and contained. It's it's great. I love the guitar sounds on the guitar tones they got on this song. Have no idea what it means. I don't know if Bird is a reference to uh, their member or something. I know Frank Sinatra used to drop. Uh, in in his uh, t- in his cover of Mrs. Robinson, he said, uh, "How's your bird? Mine's fine, and I should know," or something like that. And apparently, Simon and Garfunkel got all po'd about the fact that Sinatra changed their lyrics to talk about his his member. But so I don't. I, I really don't know what "And Your Bird Can Sing" is about. Do you have any insight on this? No, I don't think it means anything, honestly, dude. Like, um, you know, John himself said that this song was a throwaway. Uh, you know, maybe he had some snide uh, meaning for it, but like you got to remember, these guys again—they were like recording three albums a year. They would just churn this shit out, like they would just like write stuff. And once you get into the flow of it, you can just turn this stuff out. I mean, they really are more than the sum of their parts to get this stuff together and like record this stuff. You know, um, I think people would look at the song like, uh, it, it, you know, at at least at that time. And I love the song. It's it kind of pulls you into like a moment. Um, but it's not one of the ones that I would remember off this album. Usually I'm like, Oh yeah. Andrew bird can sing is on that record, but it's fun to listen to. And I read a story about it. Apparently Joe Walsh loved the solo on this song so much that he like, um, learned it all perfectly and, uh, worked so hard to catch it and remember it. And later he found out that when, when they tracked it, they actually punched in, which means that they 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 would record it in parts. <laughs> oh, I could see. Learn how to play it straight through. It's a very fast. So do 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 do. It's very fast. 
uh, the line that stands out to me in this song is, when your bird is broken, does it bring you down or something like that? And I'm like, I don't need, and then what I, I will be awoken. I'll be around it. Dude, it's, it's a throwaway, but it's fun to hear the Beatles having fun in the studio. I, I, this will never win any kind of award and nobody's going to say this is the most underrated Beatles song ever, but it's got to be one of the funnest Beatles songs. Well, it's, it's just, it's just proof that even their throwaway tracks are just like incredible. <laughs> Like, like what they were able to turn out. It's like, eh, we need another song. Let's just do this one real quick. <laughs> That's what it feels like. And it's still awesome. It's still better than, than like most. Okay, track 10 for No One. Now, you have the story behind this. It's it's another morose song that, frankly, is more gloomy than than you're used to hearing Paul or the Beatles sing. You said it's about Paul's relationship with Jane Asher. That's what I understand it to be. I kind of dug into it uh, just a little bit it there's no uh, definitive story that i could find but i did find that paul um talked about it at some point that it was probably written after a fight with uh jane asher now he had this kind of relationship with her you know i i could be wrong about this i think she was an actress um and you know so you have these two celebrities in a relationship together and they're off, like he would go on tour, she would go do a movie. You know, it's probably really easy to be ships uh, in the night like that. Sure. And I think this song was like born out of like when they were back in the same house together, probably learning how to live together again and got in a fight. But it the, the song is really about like seeing love fade, which is what eventually happened with that relationship. Um, the story that I read was that, you know, she ended up, catching him in bed with another woman at, at, at some point. Oh, that's never good. So, uh, yeah. So, you know, it's just, it's just one of those moments, you know, and, and I think that what he does, it's a pretty honest song for him, you know, about this relationship kind of uh, evaporating. And man, if it's not one of the most beautiful Paul McCartney songs ever written, would you agree? It's beautiful but it's also vulnerable in a way that was unusual for the Beatles at this time to just just really take their heart out and put it out in the open. I know Lennon was big into doing that, especially later on. But for McCartney, I don't really – McCartney never – very rarely does McCartney ever put his, his soul out there in such a like visceral way. And this is a great example of that, and it's a great song too. I totally agree. I mean, the the muted, I guess it's like a muted trumpet that's the solo on this. Oh, it's heartbreaking. It's beautiful. I mean, just a great arrangement by George Martin. And, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about too much is just what like a producer like George Martin brought to the Beatles, like his ability to uh, arrange um, more like classically based string arrangement was such a huge part of the of the sound of the Beatles and what they were able to accomplish in the studio. There's a reason they called them the fifth Beatle, right? Wouldn't you agree? Yes. And that's what the stones, I know the stones were doing something different, but the stones didn't have a George Martin of that caliber. And I know the stone, like I said, the stones are, it's kind of apples and oranges, but um, when the stones I mean, did they had uh, Andrew Luke uh, Oldham, but or Oldham, however you say his name, but it, he wasn't quite in the same spot that George Martin was, right? No, and and George Martin was uniquely unsuited to be the Beatles' uh, fifth Beatle, but yet 
he was perfect for it. Like on paper, it didn't work. Right. I remember I did. I think when he first saw me, wasn't that impressed with him. No. And, and in fact, uh, he was very like they described him as kind of like the headmaster. Yeah. You know, the guy, the guy in the suit that like, like wrangled them because they were just dumb kids <laughs> still when they started, you know, like he wouldn't even let Ringo play on, on the first singles. Yeah, I remember that. And Ringo never let him forget it as far as I from what I understand. <laughs> George probably uh, regretted some of that at some point, but maybe not. You know, I mean, uh, he was he is um, and has been one of the best producers ever uh, to grace rock and roll. And um I was sorry to see him pass away a, a, a few years ago. But his his work will live on forever. Okay, we're moving on to a song, track 11. I don't know if this will live forever, but it's a fun song. It's another one of those songs that I think Lennon wrote. Sound like about a drug dealer. It's called Dr. Robert. And this is just riddled with references that could be taken as to somebody prescribing some kind of happy pills or something. Um, uh what what is it? Uh, be my friend. You'll call Doctor Robert. He'll be there yeah. any time, any day at all. Doctor Robert, I'm a he's a new and better man. Helps you to understand. Yeah, it's. I, I mean, what would when I first heard this as a teenager, not really knowing much about drugs, I was like, this, this is uh, this is about drugs. <laughs> it just uh, sounds like it's about drugs, unless it's about a psychiatrist. But I don't think. Uh, I think at this point, Lennon was his psychiatrist was uh, marijuana and uh, LSD. Uh, there's probably some truth to that. Um, no, actually, I think there. You know, there's some stories. This is based on a real person. Do you know that? Was this the dentist that tried to get him in the orgy by dropping acid? No, um, but that that is a cool story that we should talk about at some point. The first time George and John dropped acid, we'll have to talk about that at some yes. point. Like, didn't he like surprise them? Actually, let's talk about it now. Like the like this dude, this dentist, like put lsd in like their dinner or something he slipped it into their drink or something and then when they found out what he did they were like we got to get out of here and i remember george pronouncing it orgy he said we thought they were trying to get us in an orgy (laughs) and then they walk off and i remember they go to a club or something and they don't know what's going on and they're screaming when they're in the elevator because they see the little red light come on i guess to tell them that the elevator's moving and they think the elevator's on fire (laughs) That is some crazy town, man. Uh, so is that Dr. Robert? I don't think that was Dr. Robert, but I don't think this guy, Dr. Robert, was too far off from that. Like, okay. Uh, so what from from what I could find is that uh, a lot of people think it was based on this dude named uh, Dr. Robert Fryman in New York at the time in the 60s. He was like this celebrity doctor um, that people could go to, and he was apparently pretty flexible on his prescriptions. Okay, that but, sounds right. Uh, uh, you know, you know, like uppers and downers kind of a deal. So, you know, I mean, it's probably that's what it's based on, right? Like, it seems like it lines up. No, it's a fun song. It's never going to make any compilations, but uh, no, and 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 the song to me kind of sounds like it could have been on on uh, on Rubber Soul. Yeah, it almost sounds like it was from a, like a slightly earlier time period. I will give you that, but it's a good song. Just not. Uh, it was like most bands' A sides weren't as good as Lennon's B sides and and the the throwaway songs. Um, good point. Okay, moving on to a 
track 12, which I have kind of conflicting feelings about. It's, it's Harrison's I Want to Tell You. I'm normally a big fan of Harrison's music. This song, while I do admire the creativity of chord changes, it's it's probably my least favorite track on the album. And I, I'm not saying I skip it, but it just doesn't, it doesn't really do anything for me. I think you have different feelings about it. No, uh, actually, I don't. I, I kind of agree. Um, it's definitely not one of his strongest songs. It might have been viewed as like an album filler at the time. But I still like to point out that there's three George Harrison songs on this record, which was kind of different for them. So they definitely thought that it was good enough to release on an album. Um, I don't know if this was one of the ones that was. No, this was actually released on the American version, too. Yes. You know, there was like three songs left off of the American version of this record because they showed up on the uh, Yesterday and Today record. I'm only I'm, I'm only sleeping. I have the American version and I'm only sleeping. And Dr. Robert are two I know that aren't on there. There may be another track, but it's I want to tell you is on there. There are some interesting moments in it, but it's not it's not a great song. Uh, is it any less a contribution than she said she said or and your bird can sing i don't know it's 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 kind of in that category of filler but it's i mean it's it's george and i love george's approach to music and the way he turns chords on their head but it's not it's not a great song well you know one of the things that is cool about that song is the weird um piano chord yes like that is kind of like a weird little moment where they were like let's take a risk with this song that's probably why it ended up on the record because it, it felt different from like other stuff they had done before well it go it goes to this very dissonant place and honestly that's the most interesting part of the song for me and that's why i love george's songwriting even though it, this one isn't the best example i love him taking a risk and going what if i do a screwball chord in there. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, track number 13. We got two left to go. Got to get you into my life. Now, you said you know this is about drugs. No, it, it is. Um, I don't think, you know, obviously it, it wasn't known at the time, and it was probably not until later that there was, uh, in, you know, some kind of interview where either John or Paul uh, disclosed it. But this song is very much about uh, a new thing that Paul McCartney discovered. And the stories are that, uh, you know, it was Bob Dylan on the set of Help that introduced the Beatles to marijuana, cannabis, weed, you know, chronic, whatever that is. Hippie lettuce. <laughs> <laughs> Hippie lettuce. So, uh, yeah, so, like, this song was, like, you know, basically uh, Paul McCartney described it, at, or John described it as a a hymn in praise of pot. So, basically, Black Sabbath Sweet Leaf was, like, version two of this. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I think absolutely. All you know, right it, now! It's kind of funny when you listen to it now. It's like, got to get you into my life. Well, and then, and then the, the anthology version goes, somehow, way. Yeah, it was like, probably like... The, like... <laughs> which I think people take for granted how easy drugs are to get, specifically pot is to get nowadays. I mean, it's legal in, or at least uh, medicinal in a lot of states. But at the time, you remember... I believe it was later on around the time of the Beatles breakup where um, Harrison got popped 
for having a stash of it in his house, remember? It was considered to be really, oh, right. really serious. There was like a drug raid. I think Mick Jagger and Keith Richards got snagged in it. And um, uh, Sergeant Pilcher, which is a line from a Lennon song. It was There was a Sergeant Pilcher. But so they couldn't come out and say, I love smoking weed because <laughs> I got high, because I got high, because I got high. It was serious, um, but they couldn't help themselves. And once again, it, it wasn't the first time that they like hid that in songs. No, no, yeah. no, not at all. Girl was that way. Like, girl. it was like he was smoking the joint. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. But I mean, regardless of that, of what the song's about, he still turned out like this, like dual view of it. Right. Where it's like um, it could either be about a girl or it could be about this thing, uh, which is a pretty common thing of the music at that time period where they're kind of hit hide things in there. And I got to tell you, the horn arrangement on the song is phenomenal. It's a good song. It's a good arrangement. It's classic McCartney. And I do like the fact that it has a double meaning. It makes me like the song even more, even though I'm not really um, a partaker of the cannabis per se. I do like the... uh, the hidden meaning it's subversive and i feel like lennon did it in a different way mccartney would be subversive when he was smiling at you lennon would be subversive when he was sneering at you and there's <laughs> there's charm there's charm to both sides but it's kind of it does it makes me like the song even more knowing that because i didn't I, previous to that i didn't really know well it definitely makes it uh very rock and roll right to kind of be just kind of like buck the system just a little bit all right, so the album closer might be the best album closer of all time. Tomorrow Never Knows, we named our band after it, tnksongs.com. Go check it out. Amazon Music, Spotify, iTunes, number one. That's the name of the record, number one. So Tomorrow Never Knows, in fact, um, I played this track for my father-in-law after I played him 666, our cover. And he goes, I totally hear the similarities. My father-in-law is not like a, he doesn't know about the Beatles much. He's, he's more like a Gordon Lightfoot guy. Right on. Which is cool. I love Gordon Lightfoot, John Denver, all that. Um, yeah. But. The our, Wreck it, of Edmund Fitzgerald. Is that yes, the Gordon yeah, Lightfoot the, song? Yeah. Great song. So Tomorrow Never Knows, just, I, I want to say it takes everything that you knew about pop music and flips it on its head. There's no no chord changes. There's these weird squeaking sound effects. I can't even tell what half the crap going on in the background is. But the first time I heard this was in your was in your living room. Yeah. And this was this was like almost 30 years after and my when I had hair, it was literally <laughs> flat back on my head. I did not know what I was listening to and it is a great great track. I can't think of a better album closer. Maybe a no, day in the I, maybe a day in the life, but it's yeah, it's hard. Beatles album or any album, it's hard to think of a better album closer. It's jarring in the sense of how unique and innovative it is. Now you have more on the technical side of what they did to attain some of these bizarre sounds that we take for granted. But I I I would throw down the gauntlet that any band nowadays, given what the Beatles had to use, could not recreate half of the stuff on this album of the, on this song. It takes a certain level of of uh, experimentation to get what they were trying to get onto with that song, um, and it's been covered a lot before too. I know uh, famously Phil Collins 
covered it on his uh on the same record that had uh in the air tonight on it was that was that album called that, I don't know, that's but that's a Mike Tyson I, song. It, I call it the Hangover Mike Tyson song. <laughs> I love that. Um, yeah, no, it's a it's a really good cover of it to listen to as well. But like this song is just so singular, especially for the Beatles. Like it is like one of the most psychedelic songs of the time period. Um, the lyrics are like based on passages from the. T- the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream. It's okay, so okay, cool. okay, Yoko, I'm sending you uh, 50 cents for every second. I, send <laughs> I, I totally dig that. Uh, I mean, it had uh, weird, like, technical advancements in it. Um, they used tape loops for the sound in the back, like, Basically, you know, people think of looping now. They might have seen like in a video where you could like sample something. You just play it over and over again. But literally they had like, like if you took like a a cassette tape and took all of the actual magnetic tape out of it and recorded on it and then make one big loop where you taped one end to the other and they would have these tape loops around the studio um, where they – it would even fit on a on a, a a machine anymore. They would feed it through the tape head, and then like loop the tape around like a mic stand. If you can imagine that, I wish and, they like, would have filmed this, dude. Because I mean, uh, okay, an example of a loop would be for our for our non musical listeners would be, um, you sample, do 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 do, and then you just keep repeating, do 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 do. So they basically used a like they were record all these weird loops and there's a bunch of unidentifiable sounds. Probably some of them played backwards. You can't really tell what they are. And they, um, they would string like the loops were too long. I guess they wouldn't. I don't even. I can't even wrap my mind around how they had these. How you describe it without seeing it? It's like like if you took all of the tape out of a cassette tape and instead of putting it inside a cassette player you strung it up like 10 feet across the room so that it rolls around. It's like, it's like a ribbon, like, or like yarn, basically mag- magnetic good, yeah. yarn going all over the studio. And it's, I mean, I mean, here's the point. So like what they had is they had like maybe four different sounds that were continually going and they would like turn them up at like different points and then like fade them out and then turn them up. Like that's just, I don't think anybody had done things like that in like a, a professional context before. Am I wrong? No, certainly not. I don't think anybody had even thought of it previous to that. And this is where we get into where EMI was like, there's rules. Well, they threw all, I, I guarantee the rule book did not, the EMI rule, rule book did not allow them to take magnetic tape and string it all over the studio with pencils <laughs> sticking out not. of desks and stuff. <laughs> but the Beatles at that point could write their own check. And they, yeah, you they, know, that was because of Paul McCartney too. Like he created those loops, like a lot of them. Like he would record things off the radio and then like loop it so that it would like re- repeat and stuff like that. Fascinating, fascinating song. Fascinating album. Awesome album. Awesome album. Part of me, when I started doing this, was wondering, are we going to have anything new to say about this album? But as we got going, there's just so many different crannies and nooks to get into the like little details and i feel like anybody who is a fan of that album we've given them like a buffet of stuff to choose from it's true 
go and listen to the songs. Go look it up. You know, whether you have to check it out from the library or listen to it on Spotify, iTunes, whatever, YouTube. Go look up the Beatles revolver and just spend some time with it. It might blow your mind. Or go buy the buy the vinyl if you have a turntable. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so we look forward to doing a lot of different albums like this. We're certainly going to get into Sgt. Pepper at some point and Abbey Road and the White Album. And some, I think the White Album might need to be four episodes. <laughs> or maybe just pick out key songs from it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I think we uh, we had fun. I love talking Beatles with you. It's the, it's the, the cement that really, I think if it wasn't for the Beatles, I don't know if me and you would be quite as tight friend friend wise as we are that we really bonded over the Beatles. And I, I credit your dad for a lot of that, which I can't wait to have him on the show. Yeah. He, we should get him on here. Maybe we'll get him on here to talk about uh, like, what do you think? Like Sergeant Peppers? That might be kind of cool. Yeah. That was, that was the, the other album that sort of like tomorrow never knows times 10 because well, every, every, on every track that. on Sergeant Pepper was like, wow, wow. <laughs> Wow. And then right. and then the bass um on a on a turntable, the mono track, the mono version of Sgt. Pepper, the bass just even at that time it just still rings out and I can't get wait to get the reissue, the remix reissue. Um but yeah. So I think we got a show, bro. Yeah, man. That was a lot of fun talking about that. You know, and it's kind of fitting to be the first record we go through hundred percent, you know, especially since like the name for like our music now comes from this record, you know, it, it really is like, there's some cool experimentation that I think that still comes across in the things that we do now. Absolutely. For two tape decks and a mixing board. I'm Jay Mack. And I'm Sam Wade saying stay, stay cosmic. cosmic.